Welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today's podcast features an analysis of the eighth episode of the season entitled, If Memory Serves. We'll then provide short takes on some observations we had while watching the show. And finally, we'll close out the episode with a report on other Star Trek-related news. But before we begin the synopsis, we want to remind our listeners our, our reviews contain a number of spoilers. So you may want to go back and watch the episode if you haven't already done so. All right. So here's the synopsis. The episode opens unexpectedly with a recap of The Cage. Now, this is the original 1965 unaired pilot of the original series. The episode features a false rescue mission to Talos IV. While there, Captain Pike encounters a dying race of powerful telepaths known as the Talosians. He becomes enamored with a human female called Vina, only to discover her true debilitated physicality was masked by an illusion of youth and beauty telepathically created by the Talosians, provided she remain on the planet. The events of the cage take place four years prior to the adventure that unfolds in the Discovery episode, if memory serves, and provides a context for the intense human drama that plays out. The capture of Michael Burnham and Spock becomes the focus of Section 31. Section 31 director Captain Leland orders Pike and his crew to investigate the debris of of the destroyed shuttle and modified probe from the last episode to find clues to the source of the probe's highly advanced altered technology. Leland strictly orders Pike not to go looking for his missing crew members, but both of them know that won't hold Pike for long. Leaving crew members in potential danger goes against Pike's creed, and Section 31 will keep close tabs on Discovery in case its crew find Burnham and Spock before they do. Spock and Michael arrive at the coordinates of Fortalis Four, but the shuttle finds immediate peril due to a black hole. Michael attempts to pilot the shuttle away, fearing being sucked in and crushed by the gravitational well. However, Spock, who knows this is just an illusion, uses his superior strength to neutralize Burnham while he sets the navigation controls to land safely on the planet's surface. There, they are met by Vina, who serves as an intermediary between Michael Spock and the Telosians. Once they get to the interior of the planet, the Talosians quickly diagnose Spock's distress as the inability of his mental processes, based on conventional logic, to interpret time as a fluid concept rather than the usual linear construct. If not treated soon, the damage to Spock's mind will be irreversible. The Talosians confirm they are able to heal the Vulcan, but it comes with a price. Michael must be willing to allow them to experience the source of her rift with her brother. 
Burnham reluctantly agrees to the agreement, but first insists they fix Spock's condition. To do so, Michael must willingly share Spock's memories of mind-melding with the Red Angel, a process that may place Burnham in mental distress. Now, through Spock's memories, Burnham first witnesses an apocalyptic vision where all sentient life in the known galaxy is eradicated. She then experiences her brother's stay at a psychiatric ward on Starbase 5. There, Burnham witnesses an encounter between a medical officer and Spock, in which the staff member informs the Vulcan the seven red bursts reoccurring in his dreams have actually manifested themselves throughout the galaxy. Realizing he is not insane, Spock tells the officer he wants to leave the facility, which would be his right since he had admitted himself voluntarily. However, the officer told him he could not leave since agents from Section 31 were on their way to take him in for interrogation. Spock quickly incapacitates the doctor and two guards and escapes the facility proving he did not murder the three staff members as charged. After the, this mentally draining exercise, the Telosians insisted uh, Michael carry out the agreement by allowing them to experience the source of the rift with her brother. After Vina warns her to not resist, but rather willingly allow the Telosians to enter Michael's mind, she and Spock let the Telosians enter their memories. It is revealed that when they were children, Spock idolized his older sister. However, Michael felt remaining with Sarek's family would only keep them in constant danger from the Vulcan logic extremists. Earlier, these terrorists had made an attempt on her life at the Vulcan Learning Academy. Burnham attempted to run away, but before she left the family compound, Spock stopped her and begged Michael to take him with her. Unable to reason with him, she hurt him deeply by telling him she did not want him to go with him, with her, and called Spock a weird little half-breed. After the Telosians released them from the immediacy of this memory, Michael apologizes to Spock. However, the Vulcan told her he was actually grateful for the experience since it forced him to submerge himself in logic. Now, back on the Discovery, Lieutenant Com Commander Stamets attempts to resume his life with Dr. Hugh Colbert. However, Colbert resists all efforts to do so. He then becomes transfixed on Ash Tyler, whose alter ego had previously murdered him. Colbert finds Tyler in the mess hall and dismisses his attempt at an apology. The doctor then initiates a fight with Tyler, and Saru, who is in the room, allows the fight to go unabated until the two men end the skirmish on their own. Afterward, Stamets once again tries to reconcile with Colbert, but the doctor tells him their relationship ended with his murder. He contended that the Colbert now on the ship was a totally different person and it was best if both of them moved on with their lives without each other. 
Also on the ship, Vina surprises Pike by appearing as a projection to him in his ready room. She tells him how she has lived her life during the last four years. The Telosians created an illusion of Pike so she would not be lonely. The two shared a few intimate moments together before Vina reveals her other purpose for her presence. The Telosians allow projections of Michael and Spock to inform Pike that Spock is not a murderer and that they will need to follow the lead of the Red Angel if they are to save the galaxy from a catastrophe. Pike agrees to head to the restrictive space of Talos IV to pick the two crew members up. Pike attempts to use the sport drive to get the ship in and out of the Talosian system before being detected by Section 31. However, they find the sport drive has been made inoperative due to sabotage. Saru then accuses Tyler of sending unauthorized large batches of data to an unknown recipient. The proof being the fact that the transmissions were sent using Tyler's command codes. Tyler vehemently denies the accusation, but he appears to be the only likely suspect. Knowing they will be followed, Pike orders his crew to set course for Starbase 11 at warp speed and then later alter course to Talos IV to retrieve Spock and Burnham. Just as they go into warp, there is an ominous shot of three red glowing dots in Arium's eyes that seem to signal something has taken control of her. Unable to shake Section 31 off its course, the two factions arrive at Talos IV nearly simultaneously. Both immediately lock onto Michael and Spock to transport them to their respective ships. Leland warns Pike. The two will be killed if both continue to hold on to their scrambled atoms. Vina then appears to Pike and advises him to release the two to Leland. Pike reluctantly does so out of concern for their lives. However, it turns out that the transport of Spock and Burnham was another illusion perpetuated by the Telosians. The real Spock and Michael have taken the shuttle back to Discovery. On the bridge, Spock relays the high stakes involved in the matter with the Red Angel. Pike declares his faith in Spock's claim and begins to ask the crew whether they want to join, knowing it would be in direct violation of Federation orders. Before Pike can complete his request, the bridge officers affirm their commitment to this cause despite the potential consequences to their careers. The crew of the, of the Discovery will now be viewed as outlaws within the Federation. So I, I just want to say, first of all, to our uh, listeners that... Yes, that was quite a long synopsis this week, but that's because there was so much information, so much that we really had to get across. Right. This is this is a was a jam-packed episode. There was quite a lot that happened. And it was one of the longest episodes. It was one of the longest, but it wasn't out of the it wasn't too far out of the the norm. Right. But it was it was it was actually rich with every moment, every story. Oh yeah. Had some kind of pertinent at um aspect that played into the, the the core arc for this season. Definitely. So now, uh, why don't we talk about uh, relationships, the theme of relationships. Sure, that sounds like a winner. 
So written by the team of Dan Dworkin and Jay Betty, we believe this is one of the finest Discovery episodes this season thus far, by without question. It was a true stroke of genius to link in link in events from the cage with this current Discovery story arc. And when you think about it, the cage is, for lack of a better term, the core beginnings of the Star Trek. I know... All Pike, the Star Trek uh, franchise. Right, right, yeah. right. Because even though Pike is not the first established captain of the Enterprise and, and not even the star of the series, these events that happen in the cage are primary to the way the, the show and the way the philosophy of the show moves forward. Mm-hmm. So it's, it makes sense that they actually connect back to that, that, that singular moment. Oh, yeah. Um, technologically, the Telosians are light years ahead of many of the worlds represented in the Federation. However, for all of their intellect, unre- unresolved conflict within their society led to a near extinction of their race. So frail, they must live beneath the planet's surface. Ironically, it's the Telosians' lost ability to experience emotions, except vicariously through other beings, that becomes a metaphor for all of the couples we encounter in this story. Mm-hmm. Also, it's intentional to use the cage as context for viewing the four fractured relationships presented in this episode. Those being Stamet and Culber, Culber and Tyler, Spock and Michael, and then finally, Pike and Vina. Let's examine each one of these couples one at a time. Okay, so first Stamets and Colbert. Stamets sees Colbert's return as a miracle and is puzzled why, why his partner does not share this perspective. Stamets refuses to see the pain and confusion Colbert has experienced since returning from the dead. Yet, in a way, Culber is very much like the Telosians. He can clearly recall all of his memories, but he has no real connection to them. And like the man he fought, Ash Tyler, Culber feels as if he is inhabiting someone else's body and recollections. In the scenes where Stamets so desperately wants to pick up the threads of their life together again, you your heart certainly can go out for him. However, Stamets is naive to think anyone who had been murdered and gone through such an improbable resurrection would be mentally ready or able to resume their life as if nothing had happened. Again, you have to wonder why Dr. Pollard didn't advise both Stamets and Culber on the difficulty of such a mental readjustment. This is untarted territory for these people. It only stands the reason that she should have ordered Culber to undergo significant psychological counseling before attempting to re-enter his life aboard the Discovery. Definitely, definitely. I you know, I would say this is the only weakness in this script or in the well, in a prior script it's, it's that, 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 is, that, it, that nobody ever says anything. Right. By, by the way, Cobra, right. why don't you see a psychiatrist? Right, and, and we know that it's not till later on that you get a ship's counselor on, but... But still, there should th- this this type of resurrection that that that's right. that Culber went through this type of 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 reanimation right. 
is something that's completely unknown. Well, they it, don't. They don't have a clue. There's no book they can pull off the shelf right. for to look at to figure out how you deal with this. And and, and, and obviously there are psychiatrists because Spock just came from a psychiatric ward. But he came from so, a psychiatric ward. So yeah, right. So 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 it seems like they still should allow Colbert to readjust and, right. and get psychiatric counseling before he goes back to duty. Yeah, because he's obviously not essential personnel at this time. No. They have another chief medical officer. Um, we right. haven't met him yet, but we assume that there's a chief medical officer. Or, or it's Dr. Col- Pollard, as no, far as we no, know. No, they haven't said that. They know that there's a chief medical officer. They have not named Dr. Pollard that chief medical officer. Okay. All right. So. But let's move on to our second couple in this context, and that being Culber and Tyler. Likewise, Dr. Culber and Ash Tyler have an uneasy symbiotic relationship, in part due to the fact that Tyler as Vok killed Culber, but also due to their respective current states of being. Tyler is ostracized by the Discovery crew due only partially to his association with Section 31. Culber, too, feels estranged from from his husband and his former life on the Discovery. Both men are uncomfortable in their own skins, uncomfortable with the memories of a previous life that feels, well, that feels alien to them. The fight they they get into only reveals that both men have this nagging longing for answers to the question of who am I? We think this parallel search for themselves might mean that each man could possibly hold the key to the other coming to terms with his new identity. This could lead to the possibility of Culber and Stamets to learning another way to fall in love with each other again, while Tyler might be able to choose a path in life that isn't completely shaped by avoiding his feelings for Michael or those that he still retains a vox towards Laurel. Mm. Now let's shift and uh, talk about Burnham and Spock. So high, high praise to both Sonequa Martin-Green and Ethan Peck for their performances, uh, obviously as uh, Michael Burnham and Spock in this episode. Zaniqua continues to find the right note for each scene, and Ethan seemed to both channel Leonard Leonard Nimoy's iconic portrayal of Spock as well as add his own imprint on this character. Although Ethan joined the cast later into the shooting schedule for season two, you definitely have to believe the two, that is um, Ethan Peck and Zaniqua Martin-Green, that um, that their characters have lived a life as brothers and sisters. By the sixth episode of this season, the Spock's tease had become more than tiresome. I think I can say that, quite honestly. Oh, I, yeah. I was tired of it. Yeah. yeah. However, the emotional payoff of why the pair became estranged was well worth the wait based on this episode alone. Mm-hmm. Spock acknowledged how her... Methods um, could be seen as primitive, but effective. He understood her rationale for her actions, but refused to absolve her of the hurtful deed. In fact, he claimed the act had a positive account that, led, that allowed him 
to reconcile the two identities that had been plaguing him, his human and Vulcan sides. He, his unwillingness to forgive his sister was the one thing he could do that he knew would have been as hurtful to Burnham as the wound she caused him that fateful night. The emotional pain and cost of this incident was highlighted in how the scene played out, which I think is one of the best scenes that this show has produced thus far. Yeah, I think we have to give credit here to the director, T.J. Scott, I believe. Absolutely. Yeah. And the editing was just really sharp. Yes, yes. By swapping the adult Michael and adult Spock with the young Michael and young Spock, sometimes where the adult version of one character was responding to the child version of another, created a perfect example of how childhood trauma can control the motivations of adults who perceive themselves to have matured beyond their being influenced by infantile impulses, but are still trapped within them. Mm -hmm. In spite of a better awareness the two have of one another, received by the Telosian mind meld, Spock's pain at the rejection of Michael is as fresh today as her guilt for it. Neither person is truly moved on from beyond that incident. I think that plays into how this scene, how this, how this season actually is being uh, crafted. Oh yeah, yeah. But like a real uh, sister, Burnham calls Spock out. In a rhetorical question, she asks him why he contacted her, but Michael already knows the answer, as proven in last week's episode. Now, his, uh, Spock's mother, Amanda, simply wanted to baby Spock to make up for her guilt over the way she raised him, unwilling to want him to seek care, uh, unwilling to seek care for him out of fear for his safety, not getting treatment would have left him psychologically impaired for the rest of his life. Sarek wasn't any better. His commitment to a course of logic that turned Spock over to Section 31, regardless of the serious charges held against his son, only puts Spock's life in danger. As a believer of the system, Sarek reasoned Spock would be set free if found innocent. This assumes that the discovery of Spock's innocent is the primary purpose behind Section 31's pursuit of him, which we know it isn't. Right. Spock sought assistance from Berno because he trusted she would figure out the meaning of the numbers he repeated ad nauseum. And somewhere deep inside, he had faith she would do what was best for him. Once again, this connects us back to another of the themes being addressed this season. Spock attempted to reason that the mission to save the galaxy was in keeping with the Vulcan axiom, the need of the many outweighs the need of the few. Thus, he could put up with his sister as they address this critical issue. Yet, he doubted his readiness for such a foreboding yet crucial task. He, he even confessed, but my bedrock of logic, my constant, has always been time itself. And now, time has failed me. Logic has failed me. Emotion has failed me. I have nothing to build upon, yet 
build I must. This could be the defining moment for multiple civilizations and millions of lives. And I am not ready. So then Michael Burnham asks, are you more angry with me or yourself? And like a sibling, Spock counters with a put down. Do not attempt to psychoanalyze me, Michael. Better minds than yours have tried and failed. But Burnham held her ground and did not allow him to get off track. She told him, yet you chose me for this journey. You value our connection. Perhaps the bedrock of your logic is this relationship. So, Gary, this exchange is more evidence that Michael's rejection of Spock that evening is far more important to him than he has been willing to admit. Yeah, I agree. I mean, her statement of it being the bedrock is actually probably the most appropriate thing she said to him. And it's probably something he has questioned himself but but has been unwilling to accept. I mean, it kind of, when you think about the decisions that he's made up to this point, they all kind of play from a position of him actually looking at the importance of their relationship being tantamount to why he does what he does. That's with right. Those being the motivations of contacting her and approaching her as he does. But nevertheless, let's move on to the fourth and final couple that we're going to talk about. And this one is a has a different tone mm-hmm. to it. The, uh, one that unexpectedly had a power for me that I did not anticipate. I was excited about it, but I think they did a masterful job of playing it out. And that's the relationship between Pike and Vina. Mm -hmm. Watching this episode multiple times, you can't help but be affected by the scenes between Pike and Vina. By beginning the episode with clips from the cage, you're reminded of the emotional bond they formed in their time together. More than a simple desire to protect Vina or to save her, Pike desired her. He wanted her to leave with him, but to do so, she would lose her illusion of beauty and agility if she traveled too far away from the planet. Upon Burnham and Spock's arrival on Talos IV, When Vina introduces herself to Burnham, she defines herself in the context of her relationship with Pike, calling him an old friend. This sets the stage for one of the scenes that is the most effective in this episode. Vina appears to to Pike in his ready room, and the captain nearly trips over himself out of fear of what what appears to be an apparition. It's the most unsettled we have seen Pike this season. Mm -hmm. Vina seems a little disappointed in his reaction and tries to find the words to make him feel more comfortable with her. Mm-hmm. She lets him know the Talusians have created the illusion of, of Pike, who has served as her partner, so she would not be lonely. She tells Pike she has lived a full life. Now, at this point, um, I think we must tell the viewer, our listeners, not familiar with the cage, that throughout the episode, Vina appears as different women that Pike has encountered in his life. This even includes a sexually charged, green-skinned Orion slave woman. However, the 
one form that Vina chooses to appear in this episode of Discovery is that of a soft-spoken woman with whom Pike spent an afternoon picnic with outside of his hometown of Mojave with his favorite horse nearby. Although the clothing isn't quite the same, her demeanor is. As the scene on the discovery between Pike and Vina continues, it's evident how attracted the captain is to her. He moves towards her and gently slides his fingers up her arm and touches her hair, asking, this is real? Vina tells him, as real as it needs to be. He then takes her face within his hands before taking her hands within his. I tell you, Gary, this captain is smooth. (laughs) Now, when the scene is interrupted by projections of Burnham and Spock, Pike removes his hands from Vina and turns his back to her. He doesn't see her that she's gently touching her face where his hands once touched her. Obviously, she can definitely sense the difference between a real man and an illusion. (laughs) Once that delusion and illusion of Pike runs its course, there's no longer any spontaneity. It can only behave the ways Vina remembers Pike behaving. Growth in their relationship would have had limitations and would have kept their rapport from growing even stronger over time. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the final analysis, the whole experience would eventually become unsatisfying. Oh, yeah, definitely. So uh, in that final scene together uh, that Vina has with Pike where uh, she's behind him on the bridge and... He's uh, the only one who's really aware of her. She counsels Pike to release the Discovery's transporter beam lock on Burnham and Spock, letting them be taken by Leland. However, she also has a message regarding their relationship. Vina tells him, let us all go. Trust me. At this point, Vina cannot see any opportunity for the two of them to spend their lives together. So she unselfishly tries to release him from that attachment. We know that due to tragic circumstances, one day the couple will be able to spend their last days together. However, for them now, it seems as if they may never see each other again. So let's move on to looking at how this episode approach several of the themes that we've been talking about that are being addressed this season. Mm -hmm. First off, let's talk about family. Obviously, one of the major themes of this episode is family, Um, whether it's between the siblings of Michael and Spock or lovers like Stammen and Culber or even Vina and Pike or the crew's familial relationship with Pike itself. Pike and Spock or the bridge crew as a whole when we decide when they decide to support Pike's quest to save the galaxy they do it as a unified group right as a family as a family then there's the theme of faith faith once again surfaces um, as exemplified through relationships so 
Spock must have faith that the Red Angel is truthful and sincere in its mission to save sentient life in the galaxy. Spock also must have asked Pike to have faith in his judgment to follow the design of the Red Angel. Spock places his faith in Michael that she can become the conduit for him to stabilize his mind. And Pike must have faith in Vena that she is giving him the right counsel when she helps him save his crew members. And then the third thing we want to talk about is what does it mean to be human? Now this, this theme uh, is, of course, echoed in the story arc of uh, Dr. Colbert, Ash Tyler, Vina, and also Spock. However, it is also the focus of the mysterious Red Angel, a human from the future who, during a mind meld with Spock, he perceived the emotions of loneliness and desperation. We both look forward to receiving more clues regarding, regarding the identity of this person. Yeah, I'm looking forward to finding that out. Mm-hmm. I know there's been a lot of speculation online right. as to who the, who it could the, be. the Red Angel is. Some of the ideas, I think, are a little f- out there. Yeah, like Burnham. I can't see how it's her. Right. or uh, I mean, how could she be coming from the future? Or some people have said Ash Tyler. Right. You know... I mean, so I, I think we just need a few more clues first before we can really make an intelligent guess. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. Okay, let's move on to talking about some of the humor that we found in this this episode. Although this was a very dramatic and emotional episode, there were some small parts of humor that were sprinkled through the episode. First off... Um, Let's talk about some of my favorite lines in one of the most tense scenes possible. Mm-hmm. During Saru's briefing to Pike as they did the walkthrough of the uh, through the corridors, um, Saru explained why he had allowed Culber and Tyler to fight each other. The Kelpian retorted, the Starfleet manual offers no regulatory guidelines between humans with Klingons grafted to their bones and a ship's doctor Returned from the dead. Uh, and of course, Pike wouldn't have none of that. Yeah, you know, yeah, he just said, okay, yeah. look, that don't happen anymore on my ship. Yes. You know? I mean, and he was really very clear about that. He didn't raise his voice. Nope. He didn't, he didn't get agitated. But he just made it plain. We're not having We're that. We're not having that. We're no, not having that. Right. So you better... Ch- we understand you're going through some changes. Right, right. But you need to check yourself. That's right. Right? Just... And- and, and so then there was another t- humorous moment, uh, and this was during the exchange between, one of the exchanges between Spock and Burnham. Where Spock goes, at least ask me something I have not asked myself. And Burnham uh, says, can we have a better version of this conversation? Is there a valuable question in your arsenal? Yes, um, and... Do you actually think the beard is working? Yeah, I love that exchange. I thought she was re- she had a really good reaction to that, you know. Yes, was, yes. And and the timing of the of that exchange was really very strong. Right. Also, let's move on now to a little bit of Star Trek news. Mm-hmm. There is some activity. Mm-hmm. Um the re- in the ready room this week, the there was a posted uh, interview 
this past Friday featuring Ethan Peck. And if you do watch this episode, you will find that Ethan is a charming and likable young actor. I think it actually is to his advantage um, that he presents himself in a very kind and, and comforting way in that episode. It makes the 20 some odd minutes worthwhile, actually. Oh, you think so? <laughs> I think I think I think for him, the things I learned out about him, it's it, it was entertaining. Okay, all right. And that's all. all right. I re- that's all I really think we need to say about <laughs> well, the ready obviously. room. Obviously, that's all we obviously. really need to say about the ready room. Okay, but uh, if you're looking for a more enlightening interview of Ethan Peck, then check out the podcast called The Well, hosted by Anson Mount and filmmaker Bronan. Agents. Beginning last Thursday on March 7th, the podcast featured a two-part interview with Peck, and then there will be another two-parter with Star Trek Discovery actor Doug Jones for the next four consecutive weeks. You can find The Well on iTunes or at its website, thewellpod.com. So that's, let me just say it again. It's one word, thewellpod.com. Yeah, I, I, I'm a regular listener to The Well. And um, Ethan, Ethan, Ethan Peck is really engaging in that episode. They did it at the end of the rap party for mm. Star Trek Discovery. So you can hear other voices in the background. And they, they did the first part of the two-parter. This week, the the second part, they're going to release next Thursday. And then after that, the next two weeks is going to be uh, the interview he did with Doug Jones. I think maybe during the same rap party. Oh, great. But, it's, but, but he does get at some very interesting things, both about the process that Ethan used to get into the role, and then um, they examine what their relationship and what they thought the relationship of working in this show was, because both of them came in pretty much in the same way. They're being dropped into a well-oiled machine, right. and then being asked to show a level of intimacy and connection with characters that basically they they had no, as actors, even had any relationship with. So it's interesting. I think it's a really good interview. All right. And then there's also news, more news about the Picard series. So the still untitled Picard series will have its debut the fall of 2019, so later on this year. African-American director Hanel Culpepper will direct the first two episodes. A much-in-demand television director, she has directed two Discovery episodes, Vaulting Ambition from season one and the upcoming season two episode 10 installment entitled the red angel (laughs) we also know that salvation alum santiago cabrera and former law and order svu actress michelle hurd will join the cast although their respective roles have yet to be officially announced. Yeah, I read or saw somewhere a cast description for the show, and it was unclear as to what roles, female or male, Mm -hmm. these two actors might be playing 
Um, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, I mean, that I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about yeah, it. Yeah, there's been, um, I, I know I read at least one article where somebody really tried to speculate, yeah. you know, which role, because he he had found a, a, a list of character names, yeah. and so he tried to put, you know, the the... the the actors who you know who get cast with these character names, but nobody knows yet. Right. Yeah. Nobody's got a clue. Yeah. Okay. So, basically, next up is episode nine of season two, Project Dataless. In this episode, it appears Arium is revealed as the Discovery's unwilling saboteur, an agent of some unknown entity. As the title and scenes from the trailer seems to imply, Michael and the crew find themselves lost in a maze at the mercy of Arium and perhaps a mysterious lethal creature from the future? Mm. Mm. We don't know, but, you know, that's what we're guessing anyways. (laughs) But until that time, like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter at Star Trek AOD on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Star Trek AOD on our website Star Trek AOD.net where you we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon photos interesting sidebar issues and aspects other aspects of the show also you can email us your thoughts about the show at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.